Hey, Dr. Bricker. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Spencer. Who'd, who'd have known that insurance can be a little rock and roll, right? Like <laughs> trying to add a little coolness to an industry that doesn't have a whole lot of cool, as you as you know. Very good. Well, that music is from our generation. <laughs> so if you, yeah, genera- and I, I was uh, joking with a, a previous guest that I, I paid like $9 to get that because I didn't realize early on, I made the mistake early on, if you use actual music, even if it's five or 10 seconds of of a clip, you'll get a copyright flag immediately. Oh, you, sure. Yeah, YouTube has their algorithm. They can find essentially anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I bought one that is free and clear, and I can play that music every time. But uh, anyways, appreciate you, you joining me this morning, and thank you for being flexible with scheduling and all that. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Spencer. I think your podcasts and your videos on YouTube are fantastic. Oh, I mean, yeah. They are so good. You have to watch Stop Loss with Spencer. If you've not watched this on YouTube, you have to. <laughs> it is really good. Well, thank you, sir. And I appreciate you buttering me up a little bit. That's uh, always welcomed. I think uh, if I can do the inverse as well, I learned by watching you a little bit with your whiteboard series. And uh, you certainly, I believe, are the professor uh, when it comes to whiteboarding. For the folks that don't know Dr. Bricker, we'll get into your background. We'll get into all your content uh, creation as well. But you are a machine. Uh, oh, almost every you. morning I see something out there. And the level of engagement is great. So uh, keep doing what you're doing, sir. So uh, asking how you're doing, of course. And I also, if you don't mind, want to ask, how are the alpacas doing? So I live on a small alpaca farm. And <laughs> we have uh, just three alpacas. But we also have some chickens and some longhorns that graze in our pasture. But the Alpacas are doing great. It Did is. they survive the uh, winter storm yeah, we had? Yeah, so a alpacas, you know, they're from uh, South America up in the Andes, so they're used to really cold weather. And frankly, they've got a ton of fleece. They need to get <laughs> sheared every spring. So actually right now they're getting kind of hot. Okay. So they're going to get sheared uh, next week, and I'm sure they will feel much more comfortable. Well, so that's funny. We, we had a conversation, I don't know if it was eight months ago, six, eight months ago, where we were just talking about your advice uh, for me on, on some content creation and how to set it up. But in that conversation, we got on the subject of alpacas, and you shared with me that there's a, a family or a company that travels uh, the country, it's and you have thing. to schedule that's to right. get them sheared, it's right? Like, it's like being in a rock band. They yeah. go on the road in a van, <laughs> and they come down from Ohio. There's a, there's other folks, like in Montana, that hit the West Coast, and it's like this whole like subculture of itinerant alpaca shears. So who would have thought? That's funny. And uh, may I ask you, was there always an interest in, in owning alpacas, or what was the the draw there? Yeah, so you know you've got to have animals in order or, or hay to keep your agricultural sure. Exemption here in Texas. And so alpacas actually count as livestock. They're not considered exotic. So you can't use exotic animals. So you can't use like zebras for your <laughs> your uh, your exemption. It has to be livestock. So alpacas actually do count as livestock. And they're incredibly docile. So they're very shy. I've got three children who are fairly small. So I can be very, you know, sort of comfortable that the alpacas are not going to get aggressive around them. And they're very easy to maintain. I mean, my wife and I are both city slickers. We don't know anything <laughs> about farming. Uh, and so we needed something that we could, that we were capable of doing. And al- alpacas are just incredibly easy. That's cool. And not to digress too much, but I did grow up with a, a friend of mine, ha- his mother raised llamas, which mm-hmm. I know is similar in the yeah. family. And I remember they were fairly, fairly easy to take care of, although the punishment for him or the chore that he had to do always was the poop scooping, uh, which Listen, is... Listen, farm, farms involve poop. That's just... 
just the way it is. <laughs> I got and sucked into okay. it a couple times. Yeah. I was like, this isn't that fun. But anyway, so let's, of course, get into it. Although I could do uh, alpacas with Dr. Bricker as a, a future podcast. <laughs> That'll be another podcast. That'll be a different That's podcast. Great. But um, So I, I think I obviously know you well and know your work very well. I think anybody that follows you or connected with you on LinkedIn, likewise, uh, does the same. But anybody that doesn't know Dr. Bricker, if you don't mind, can you give us a little of your personal and work backstory that has led you to today? Sure. So uh, I am an internist. I graduated from undergrad in 1998. Uh, I was pre-med. Every single doctor I talked to said, whatever you do, don't go into medicine. Because at that time, HMOs and managed care were you know, ruining the practice of medicine with all the bureaucracy. And so instead of going straight to medical school in the late 90s, they were just giving away jobs. You couldn't not get a job when you were graduating from college in the late 90s. And okay. so I went and I worked for a hospital finance consulting firm that uh, helped doctors and hospitals uh, get paid from insurance carriers, Medicare, Medicaid. So I learned a ton about the claims, a ton about the bureaucracy uh, in healthcare, all that paperwork side of the business. And I decided I still wanted to be a physician. So I went on to medical school at the University of Illinois and then residency at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in internal medicine. And I chose uh, Johns Hopkins because it's, it's in the same town. So CMS is headquartered in Baltimore as well. And I thought I wanted to be a policy wonk. All right? I, saw, I, I saw so many challenges and frustrations and problems within healthcare. And I wanted to go the policy route. And then after being in residency only for a short amount of time, I realized that, that I was just too impatient to go the policy route because publishing papers and then not necessarily seeing any sort of change come out of that was just going to be too frustrating for me. So I just wanted to, to get my hands in it and um, really just for reasons of temperament um, became an entrepreneur and started Compass Professional Health Services with a colleague of mine from uh, back when I was a, a hospital finance consultant. And we um, bootstrapped the business starting in 2007 with a third partner and we grew it to over uh, 2,000 employer clients, and Compass provided healthcare navigation services for employers uh, and their employees and their family members on their health plan. And this was when the consumer-directed health plan just started coming about. And so people's co-pays were going away, and they were getting this HSA or HRA debit card. And uh, people were like, okay, now what do I pay? And at Compass, we actually provided the in-network price transparency along with uh, concierge services like problem bill resolution. We would help you uh, find lower cost prescriptions. We would find doctors that meet, met the specific specialty need that you needed. And it was put in conjunction as the tool for the employees along with those CDHPs. And so we then sold the business in uh, 2018 to Alight Solutions, which is essentially the HR outsourcing spinoff of Aon. So Aon okay. you know, bought Hewitt, and Hewitt did a ton of HR outsourcing. And so the Alight um, offices are still in the Hewitt headquarters in suburban Chicago, and it's a 10,000-employee company, billions in revenue, and they were able to use uh, Compass to sort of augment their existing uh, navigation uh, services. And it's been, it's been great for the employees. Compass itself uh, has grown underneath Alight. It's not even called Compass anymore. It's, it's Alight's Health Navigation Solutions, which is fine. I'm not particularly tied to the name. What I want is the assistance to be able to grow for people. And that's really why we wanted Alight to buy us, because they worked with very large corporations. And we had about 2,000 employer clients. 
it's mostly mid-market. And so to be able to then take a Lights uh, Benefits Administration platform and then bring Compass to so many more people, it's just awesome. I'm just so thankful for all of our employees that are still there and thankful for a light for that. And so I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, and I just knew that there was still a lot of um, misunderstanding in terms of how uh, employers and employees were um, to a certain extent, just being taken advantage of by the healthcare system. Okay. And that there are many solutions out there that are trying to help them, whether it be through a transparent PBM or a variety of other, of other services. But it's really hard to sell a solution if your customer doesn't even understand the problem that they're having. Yes. And so you're right, you got to sell the problem before you sell the solution. And so I'm like, okay, well, let me help educate people on really, a, you know, at the end of the day, for better or for worse, healthcare has a lot of deceptive practices. And so let me, because I can kind of shoot people straight, I'm independent, mm-hmm. I can say, hey, um, this is kind of how um, things really work. So that when you do have uh, somebody coming in, whether it be a broker, a benefit consultant, or a vendor coming into to HR benefits saying, you know, here's a solution, then you can put that solution in some sort of context because you're like, oh, yeah, I heard, you know, Dr. Bricker and his A Healthcare Z uh, videos about that. So A Healthcare Z is um, healthcare finance educational videos. It's on YouTube, and I post them on LinkedIn as well. And that, and, and you and I actually live near each other yes. and you're on LinkedIn all over the place and you do videos. Yeah. So apparently North Texas and the Dallas Fort Worth area is the epicenter of insurance and healthcare, uh, modern media communication. Wait, so who'd, who'd it's, who'd the, thunk it, it's right? the Hollywood basically. <laughs> so if you live somewhere else in America, come to Dallas. Cause this is where it's happening. This is where it's at, man. <laughs> It's funny you say that because I think the towns that we live in have a combined maybe 50,000 people or so. But I think you're right. And I, I mentioned um, potentially that, uh, you know, I'm somewhat of an apprentice to the the methodology that you use. I have a great deal of respect for what you do there. Um, and I think I'm even going to schedule some time uh, with this discussion to go in depth to content creation and your MO and your okay. perspective. Um, could could we take a step back, though, because obviously the, the, the general uh, – summation of what I want to talk about is the self-funded industry. I'm, I'm motivated by what self-funding can do to, for and to employers bottom line, as well as the, you know, the population themselves, how they can benefit from it, the members themselves. Um, so you mentioned healthcare navigation. Can we unpack that a little bit more? What is, what is healthcare navigation? How would you define that? Yeah. So it is, it is now actually a space which at the end of the day, when Compass started, like it, it wasn't even a thing. So to a certain extent, you know, I want to be humble when I say this, but we kind of helped put it on the you map. Created helped a start category, it, right? You know, and there was other companies too. So there was Health Advocate out of Philadelphia and there was uh, Accolade out of the Philadelphia area and then also Seattle now as well. Uh, there was the company called Castlight that tried to do it through a SaaS platform. So essentially, people realized that n- the healthcare system is so complicated itself that just being able to navigate the healthcare system completely in a non-clinical perspective, in other words, not the decision between the doctor and the patient over what test or procedure should be ordered or what the clinical plan should be, but just actually navigating all of the bureaucratic hoops and the disjointedness and the disconnectedness within healthcare itself actually causes one it causes a lot it causes a lot of financial waste for employees in terms of their out of pocket cost and employers as well what does that mean specifically 
moving to a consumer-directed health plan, when we started Compass, was only about 2% of employees. It is then, if you go through the Kaiser Family Foundation numbers, it's upwards of about 33% of employees now. So it's number two after PPOs. And if you, uh, if you look at a consumer-directed health plan, it's actually actuarially superior to a PPO plan, right? Because you're, you're just basically throwing a whole bunch of money away in the low deductible PPO plan design, where if you raise the deductible, but then give people the money back, you could even give them all their money back. You could raise the deductible to $2,000 for an individual, and you could give them $2,000 on an HSA card or an HRA account that rolls over year to year. And they, instead of acting in sort of a blank check perspective, oh, you know, I, I call PPO sort of the passive provider organization, sort of jokingly. Here's my $25 copay, doc, do whatever you want. Right. Instead, the consumer-directed health plan plan design encourages people to be active participants in their care. And there's actually a, a quote-unquote official term for this. It's called shared decision-making, which, believe it or not, only in healthcare would this be a novel concept <laughs> where there's a shared decision between the doctor and the patient, right? Yeah. right? Typically, we have this paternalistic relationship where the doctor just tells the patient what to do. But that's actually not good for people's health. They've actually done studies to say that when the patient and the doctor come to a decision together, that actually the person's health and their decisions are much better than when it's just totally run by the doctor. And so that's part of the reason why that consumer-directed health plan is actuarially superior to to a traditional PPO plan, but then there's a problem. Okay, the employees then have to be quote unquote healthcare consumers, which is impossible. Sure. You know, people within the, the health insurance industry, you know, what was one of the major customers of Compass? Health insurance brokerages themselves. <laughs> <laughs> You're I mean, telling me a lot of them don't know how to navigate the healthcare no, system? No, and they would joke and say, no, it's for the P&C guys. It's not for the yeah, benefits yeah, people. Yeah. But it's like, no, I mean, it's so bad. Well, I think that just, in, I think obviously that speaks to why your company was able to, uh, you know, create a new space or a new category for that. But also I think it speaks to the complexity of the healthcare system in general. One, just understanding your benefit plan design itself and then the second layer and third layer is okay where do i go what do i need how do i even find out what i'm supposed to get or who to go to as well as nobody has any idea what it is going to cost until you receive in the bail a, a bill in the mail six weeks later nine weeks later whatever it may be and being able to better navigate the healthcare system in other words to get the right care with the right type of doctor at the right time for the right price is like totally doable Right, it is, that, is a, that is a solvable problem, and it's solvable one person at a time yep. and one company at a time. You don't. We didn't want to boil the the quote unquote healthcare ocean. We said, hey, for you, John and Mary, or for you, X Y Z employer, let's solve your healthcare problem that you're having like right now. Yes, and that might be, hey, my insurance is denying a laser treatment in my ophthalmologist office for my retina because it's against their medical policy. And they said for this particular diagnosis that they're not going to cover the quote unquote use of the laser. Who would know that? No one would know that. And that, that, that was, that's a real example of something that really happened. And it could happen after the fact when the person's getting billed for it, or it could happen beforehand when they're trying to go through the prior authorization for it. It could be, okay, how, you know, of course with, and the opioid pandemic, I would have never realized this. We would get a call a week f from a frantic parent with a child 
and they were trying to find an addiction treatment center for them. And the coverage for inpatient psychiatric care and for addiction treatment is incredibly complicated. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's, it's like impossible. And this is a fairly urgent situation where they're like, listen, we got to get them in, you know, this weekend, you know, before mm-hmm. they run away again. I mean, that literally happened. And like we were able to like get them into a place that would actually accept their insurance and go through the prior authorization. And you have to get authorization for a certain number of bed days for having inpatient, you know, psychiatric, you know, abuse and and very practical stuff. And you can, without having to quote unquote boil the ocean with policy changes, you just need to solve that specific problem for that specific person at that specific time. And it's totally doable. And like the people at, you know, Compass of Light or any navigation service that do this, I mean, they are heroes. And we would have these people who were really at wit's end because there's no one that sits in the middle as the ombudsman or the advocate on behalf of the patient. Mm-hmm. You, you complain to the doctor. The doctor says, it's not my fault. It's the insurance company's fault. You talk to the insurance company. It's not our fault. It's the provider's fault. And so you're like, okay, uh, then who's going to help me? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no one. No one is going to help you. So you go to HR, and HR is like, "This isn't what I do, right?" <laughs> so, that, so, so that that what that was the need that 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 navigation fulfilled. I apologize. That was no, super it, long. No, I love it. Question. I, you know what? I love. It, that, I was so excited to have you on because I uh, I love the level of passion. You know, I do watch your videos in the morning. I'm I'm generally a fan, and the level of passion you can bring to a subject like surprise billing. You know, it's for four types of surprise bills that a member receives. And I, I knew coming on that uh, we were going to get excited a little bit talking. Um, was there a pivotal moment, though? I mean, you seem like a, a very, obviously a very passionate person. Was there an epiphany when you were an internist working in the medical profession that said, this is the problem I need to solve? Was there a specific instance? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's, uh, it's what every single... Um you know, general practitioner and many other specialty, specialty tools, if they see that every day. And so I really started seeing a lot of it in medical school um, where the, um, the test or procedures or, or what have you that needed to be navigated by uh, the patient, the doctor was spending a ton of time having to, to deal with that and make that happen. And they were not equipped with the knowledge or the, st- or the support staff or what have you. And so as a result, it really kind of fell through the cracks and it didn't get done. And ultimately it was the patient that suffered as a result of that. So um, it was, it was a ton, it wasn't one particular experience, but it was seeing, you know, you, you do your clinical rotations in your, your third and your fourth year of medical school, but it was two years of kind of seeing that like almost every day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Yep, no one's going to fix that. Yep, no one's going to fix that. Yep, no one's going to fix that. And so then when I went and I talked to my partner, uh, Scott, who I started comes with, he was seeing the same thing. On He stayed on the billing and the administrative side uh, uh, in healthcare, and he was seeing the same thing. And so we knew with our company, I couldn't do it alone, and he couldn't do it alone. And we couldn't do it with our th- without our third partner who had all the technological and software expertise. So we know that each of the three of us couldn't do it alone. But we knew that if we put what we knew together, that we actually could solve the quote unquote healthcare problem in America one person at a time. If we combined what we knew for one person, we could actually make it work. And so we just we just worked on, you know, having these health pros that would then, you know, take what we knew. We had a curriculum, we had software to support them that could take that and just do that one person at a time incrementally. Well, it's, it's interesting that there's a, a fable, I think I remember growing up, about the, 
there's a girl standing on the shore and throwing um, starfish back into the ocean. And somebody walks up to her and is like, hey, well, do you really think you're going to make a difference? Because there were thousands of them strewn across the, the shore. And she said, well, it's after she threw one, well, I made a difference for that one, right? So I, I appreciate the approach that you're taking that is, I'm going to directly solve an individual's problem. And if we do that often enough to solve that per- person's particular problem, there could be a snowball's effect. So uh, walk me through the building of this, because I'm fascinated as somebody that's in a, a company that's in the earlier stages as well, and we're trying to solve a very big problem and think we're, we're going to be part of that solution. Walk me through, okay, we've got this idea, we've put it in motion, but of course you, you talked about, what, a 10, 12-year uh, life cycle to mm-hmm. build, to sell. So yeah, I'm sure there's some ups and downs through that. So kind of walk me through the earlier stages and then when everything perhaps clicked and you realized you were onto something significant. Yeah, so we started, like I said, we started the business in 2007. And so the Great Recession almost immediately hit. And so we didn't bootstrap the company because we wanted to. We bootstrapped the company because we had to. We actually tried to go out and raise money and were unsuccessful. (laughs) Uh, So we, um, we were very... Um, you know, people like to use all sorts of like nice sounding euphemisms. We were just cheap. We had (laughs) office space in a very, like, I shouldn't say very, in a fairly dangerous part of Dallas. And like our office building like got broken into and our office mates next door to us, they got all their computers stolen. We just lucked out that our computers didn't get stolen uh, or printer or whatever. And, um, and we just, we just didn't spend any money. We didn't pay ourselves any money. I still moonlighted as a doctor on the nights and the weekends to uh, pay the mortgage, et cetera. So one, we were cheap. Um, Two is we had to solve a lot of problems. So when you don't have any money, you have to solve a lot of problems really fast because you need revenue. You need to bring money in. Okay, so in order to bring money in, it really forces you to be open-minded to iterating, right? Because what everybody does, you know, is everybody has like a plan. And it's like the famous, you know, Von Moltke quote is that, you know, no war plan survives the first shot of the battle, right? And so immediately everything changes, right? Let me tell you the first thing that changed. Our company started out as a personal health records business. We were going to collect all your medical records and put it on a USB drive, and you were going to take it from doctor's office to doctor's office so that you would have this unified medical record. <laughs> you know, guess what? No, but that might be a good idea. It might not be a good idea. No one's willing to pay money for that idea. And so we quickly learned that we needed to, to iterate a ton. And so, like, we just tried a whole bunch of stuff. And my capacity was really in, I, I was the sales guy. So it was in sales and marketing. And this is really the, this is, in my opinion, why startups succeed. It's because at the end of the day, uh, an entrepreneur or just starting a business, like you have to, you have to sell, right? Especially in healthcare, because the vast majority of the solutions are business to business. They're not business to consumer. And so business to business really requires sales. Business to consumer, it's a lot more marketing, right? Like if you're doing like toys, right? You really got to market the toy, but you don't really have to have like a salesperson, like sell the toy, right? Whereas in business to business, there is a, a role for marketing, but you really have to sell it, right? Um, going into, if you, if you ever go into DFW or Love Field, right? What is that airport filled with? It's filled with business to business salespeople getting on planes. Um, you know, they all live in South Lake. So the, um, so the key is, and, and this is where I didn't even know this framework until later on in the business, but we sort of intuitively, intuitively stumbled into it um, because we had to. And that's the four P's of sales and marketing, the product, the price, the placement, and the promotion. And typically, sales just does 
the placement and the promotion. And the placement is basically the channel. Like how do you how do you bring it to market, right? Mm-hmm. Are you selling tomatoes by the side of the road or are you selling them in the grocery store, right? Well, if you sell tomatoes in the grocery store, it's high, it's much more effective than selling them on the side of the road, right? So what is that? What is the channel? And that's where we, you know, the channel was through the the broker consultant was the channel. So that placement was super important. We had to learn that through trial and error. Um, the next was um, the promotion. Okay, well that's the salesperson and the marketing, right? You know, that's going out and getting leads and walking them through the sales funnel and closing and contracting and all that wonderful stuff. Okay, that's great. Okay, but there's two other P's that are equally as important, and that is the price and the product. And so there were no walls. There was no bureaucracy between me, the salesperson, and my two other partners around the price and the product. And so, and this is uh, the, the, the two people that you need to read coming out of this podcast are Steve Blank and Aaron Ross in his book, Predictable Revenue. And Steve Blank's book is The Four Steps to the Epiphany. And like literally what happened at Compass is exactly what they described in their books. Like it is like word for word, page for page, exactly what happened. And everybody in Silicon Valley knows who these two guys are. And, and I was just like, okay, this is, this is great. I'm just going to do what they do. And so Steve's blank big thing is, is that, look, as soon as you have any idea, your very first thing to do is you're going to go out and you're going to talk to 50 people about it. And because your idea doesn't mean squat. It's what other people's thoughts about your idea is what matters. So I was, I was constantly talking to people about the product and I was bringing that feedback of the product back to Cliff and Scott. And we had the relationship such that everybody was open-minded and very desperate to bring in revenue. And so therefore we really adapted to things. So this is where we had no interest in doing any sort of assistance on the prescription side in the beginning at all. And it turns out that was a huge problem that people were having because their drugs were so expensive. And so we had to really sort of pivot in terms of adding that type of service. And then the personal health record thing, like we almost never did that. So it's not only adding certain features, but it's also just getting rid of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's the key that so many startups have is they just want to add, 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 add. And then it turns into this, you know, giant, you know, Taj Mahal. Mm-hmm. And you need to be able to cut a whole bunch of stuff away. Yeah. Okay. And then also too, the price is super important, right? Because product people and finance people, product people love building Taj Mahals. Okay. Product people will never want to build. And you know, again, this is a Steve Blank thing. You got to You got to get to the market early with your with your minimum viable product now keep in mind the product person's definition of minimal viable product is the Taj Mahal so just know <laughs> that that's how it is with everybody because they want the product to be perfect because they're product people yep. but if you're a salesperson I'm just like just get it out like I don't care if it's ugly just give me something mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and also give me something and of course because they want to build Taj Mahals Taj Mahals are expensive and I'm like I can't I, I understand you've got a Taj Mahal I understand it's what I, I cannot go to a, pr- a prospective customer and say it costs X when it really needs to needs to cost 10% of X. So you need to strip out a whole bunch and maybe we sell them like the tile on the Taj Mahal and we charge them like 10 cents for it. And I can sell Taj Mahal tiles, but I cannot sell the entire Taj Mahal. So being able to get them to a, pr- and Scott and Cliff were great where I would bring, I'm like, look, look, this is not my opinion. I'm just telling you what the market is telling me. This has nothing to do with my opinion. So like we need to like respond to that. And so we were able to get to a price and a product that actually had a fit. And then you apply that to a niche and then you bowling alley that uh, to like other niches and it takes time. And it took us from really until 2012. So it took us five years between like nothing 
and like the beginning of the hockey stick where we were actually generating a significant amount of income. So it's five years. And when we got started at Compass, I told my wife, I'm like, I'm not going to do this forever, but give me five years. And I just guessed as to why five years. Well, I was going to say, is that, is that a typical horizon for the startups that do succeed is five years? No. Or you so just picked it, so uh, startups, fail. startups fail because they run out of money. It's yeah. very simple. It's, it's your, as soon as you hit positive cash flow, your runway becomes infinite, right? So all you have to do is become cash flow positive, and your runway is gone. And that's what we did. We got our runway to cash flow positive in like year two or three because we didn't spend any money. Yeah. <laughs> so, so getting to, and they, they call it ramen profitable. You want to be so cheap that you want to get to profitability. And what happens is, is that when you get outside, so I actually think that the model of venture capital funding for healthcare, it can work in some situations, but in a lot of situations, it doesn't work because when they give you a lot of money, they want you to spend the money and they want you, the, the, the most valuable thing to them is actually time. They want you to grow fast. And to a certain extent, you have this, it's like cheese and wine. You have this, you know, fermentation period of three to five years that you kind of have to go through in order to be able to make it stick. And so I would say that in the history of startups that Compass might have been one of the most capital efficient startups in like the history of healthcare startups. We used so little capital, like we used too little capital. Arguably, we used too <laughs> little capital. We could have been much bigger if we had actually used more. But the point is, is that it is, um, it is, in my opinion, it's that sales process in the beginning that is so difficult. It's hard, which is why so many startups fail. If it was easy, then these startups wouldn't fail. Mm -hmm. But the sales process in the beginning is super hard to do. Like, and I, there's, there's no easy answers for it, you know, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, if you're having trouble with it, that's totally normal because it's like really hard. Yeah, that's fair. And I'm glad that you are able to look back now and give the perspective in hindsight of a successful venture, because I think the lessons you probably learned along the way, I'm sure there was plenty of bumps and bruises, but you also were able to learn what works in real time, which I think is fascinating. And I, we probably could fill a podcast of, of just that discussion, because I do think, you know, just knowing what you've accomplished and what you guys were able to do and, and creating a category in and of itself is, is fascinating uh, to me. Before we, I know we got to wrap here pretty soon. I wanted to ask a couple uh, things in yeah. particular to get into if you don't mind, um, I would love your perspective on content creation because obviously you've you've dived in headfirst on this. Um, kind of want to hear about your motivation for it as well as maybe some advice to some other folks out there that might watch a podcast like this or see some of your videos and think, oh, I can maybe do that, but then they get scared to take that first step. So yeah, and I'd love to hear your perspective. That's very that's very uh, interesting. So thank you for asking that, Spencer. So the um, so you know in terms of internet trends that more and more of internet consumption is going the way of video as opposed to um, text or even audio and more and more is going video. Um, it is incredibly easy to generate video and videos that ha are viral or have a great amount of impact do not need to have a lot of production quality. So to, to think that you need to have a lot of production quality to create video is wrong. The, the, the word content is actually what is the most important piece. And that content either has to be one of two things. It either has to be educational or entertaining. 
you can have edutainment stuff and you can have some like ASMR meditation stuff. Those are some other categories, but really education and entertaining are the two categories. Okay. So in order for the content to be educational, it needs to be, um, it, it needs to, the person who is actually delivering the information needs to have a certain degree of subject matter expertise. Mm -hmm. Okay, so perfect example is you and your uh, self-funding dispenser. Because you have self-funding expertise, you were able to educate incredibly well about that. Now, you didn't try to educate about things that you were not a subject matter expert on. It's like, let me tell you how it really is. And you did that with attach attachment points and, you know, corridors and all that awesome stuff. And everybody has an area of expertise that they have. So the point is, is that you pick a niche that aligns with your area of expertise, and then you just go with it with the content creation. Now, so that's the, that's the strategy in terms of the content creation. Now, there are certain content creation tactics that you can learn on YouTube, right? I mean, it's not hard to do. You just go onto YouTube and it's like, how do I make a good video? And they tell you, okay, one, you don't need, the camera is actually the least important part of content creation. The most important, uh, important part of the video of the content creation is actually the lighting. Yeah. So I screwed up the lighting a ton in the beginning. And so actually like working on how to get the lighting right is a big, and there's a gazillion YouTube videos on how to do lighting. Okay, so one is pay attention to your lighting. Two, this, the next one is like paying attention to your audio. Okay, so like the audio is also re really important. And, and it doesn't have to be perfect. My audio isn't perfect on mine. Okay, so that's fine. Okay, then the other tactical piece is, is that the content needs to be quote unquote good. Okay, it needs to actually be educational, actually needs to be entertaining. Okay, so then how do you do that? Okay, so one of my favorite quotes is from Linus Pauling, who's one of the few people who won two Nobel Prizes, one for peace and one for chemistry. And Linus Pauling said, in order to have a good idea, you have to have a lot of ideas. So to think that every one of your ideas is going to be good is ridiculous. You need to have a ton of ideas. And only, you know, 80-20 rule, right? Only 20% of your ideas are going to be good. So you need to create a lot of content. And it totally stratifies. If I look at my YouTube views and watch time, 80% of my YouTube watch time comes from 20% of my videos. I do. I wish I knew a priori which videos were actually going to be. I have no, I have no, I create these videos and I'm like, this is a horrible video. And it will be one of the most popular. And then I, I created one just the other day. And I'm like, this one is fantastic. And <laughs> nobody watched it. <laughs> well, that's just it. Like the audience is always right. It's a funny thing that you have to learn. And I, I, to your point, the very first video I made, which was literally Stop Loss 101, had no idea about lighting and framing and all that stuff and audio or anything and used my uh, previous version of my iPhone to do it is still by far the most watched video I've ever made. And I'm like, well, what did I, if I were to go back and make that video now, I would change about a dozen different things. The content would still be the same, but the way that I shot in the production, those things. But I think the one thing that you emphasized to me on that call we had uh, a few months back was, hey, it doesn't have to be perfect. I still use my iPhone today. I use a little lapel mic on occasion, or if I, in a room that's good, I have a separate microphone, but it doesn't have to be perfect. If it's, as long as it's at a level in my perspective that, 
is not disengaging, where you turn it on and go, oh, that is so bad. I don't care what they have to say. It's got to be just at that threshold. And then as long as you said, like, you deliver on the actual subject matter itself, I think that is where you will get a little bit of traction. And I do think consistency is another one of those things that's the, important. Um, the other thing, so a couple other tactical things, too, is that if you're going to put things on YouTube, your thumbnail is of, uh, of utmost importance. So you actually have to spend a lot of time making your thumb. And there's there's videos on YouTube about how to look at thumbnails. <laughs> I've, so I've watched them. I have yeah. horrible videos videos that have a good thumbnail and people watch that stuff. And I have really great videos with horrible thumbnails. People do not watch that stuff. Okay. The other thing is that when you talk a lot of, you know, whether it be a vlog or whatever, you want to have the shot be from about your navel, your belly button up, and you want to include your hands and you want to speak with your hands because if it's just your face, a lot of times when people are educating, they, they just kind of zoom in on their face. And frankly, it's just kind of weird because when you look at somebody, and it, I, I, this was not intuitive me, to me, I watched a YouTube video about it. When you look at somebody, your, your view that you focus on is more than just their face. Right. So when I look at you, I'm basically looking from your navel up. It's so a I, proverbial three button shot, right? I think that, is what they call it. In, in see, look, I didn't even know that yeah. it, ha it has a name, but that's, that's super, because otherwise your videos are going to kind of look, it's strange. It's going to look weird, right? So you've got to do that. And you've got to, my kids always make fun of me that I, you know, I speak with my hands, but that's how, you know, you, we've all heard this before, right? About how 90% of communication is not with the words that they would say. It's with so much of it is nonverbal as well. And so people are kind of used to when they look, when they listen to somebody, they kind of want to watch what their, you know, what their hands and their facial expressions are doing as well. So you got to incorporate that. You have to lay on the enthusiasm because the mic and the video will just suck the enthusiasm out of you. So if you act like normal, so I'm just going to, this is how I kind of normally am. Mm -hmm. And at this point in the podcast, all of your listeners are going to be like, oh, he just looks kind of down. Well, let's bring it back up. We this, don't is kinda, this is kind of boring, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's like, cause, cause, and that's just how, I don't know why that is. You know, somehow the electrons get altered, you know? But that, and you have, you have to put, I call it put heat on the, heat on the ball. Yeah, you gotta you gotta zing it in there. In tennis, it's called a pusher. You don't want to be a pusher. You gotta put some heat on the ball when you're throwing it in there. Well, I think that's I've noticed in this uh, the Zoom year that we had of 2020, where everything went to virtual meetings and virtual presentations. Uh, you know, I, I was resistant at first, and then I realized, well, hey, this isn't going to change anytime soon, so you better really adapt to this new model of selling and this new model of communication and meeting. And it also was, at the same time, that sort of precipice that led me into creating the first Stop Loss video. It was, it's, all right, well, let's dive in head first because I can't change this right now, so I might as well learn to adapt. Um, but I do think you're right, too, that there is... Being in person, I'm glad we get to host this in person because sitting across from you, there's a level of energy that you might not perceive in, in you know, over over the waves, over Zoom. Um, and I love just, uh, as a salesperson, I just love being in the same room as people. Just, they're so, it's so much more fun. It's so much more engaging. And you feel like you have a much better read on the person you're talking to rather than doing it over. And, this, and this, is, this is what I found to be, because I actually still do, you know, so I do, I, I have an insurance license and I actually sell individual Obamacare policies through Texas Family Insurance. And I actually, I'm doing it pro bono, but I'm helping a local um, direct primary care practice work with employers. And so I'm still involved in selling. So I've been doing selling during this virus and I also did a ton of remote selling at Compass because we were too cheap to afford for me to get on a plane. That's right. Fair. So That's I did fair. a lot because I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have 150 bucks to get on a Southwest flight to go to Houston. So we're going to do this over the phone. Um, and I'd make up some sort of excuse. Um, and so the, uh, other than we don't have money, yeah. right. You know, um, my schedule's packed. 
Um, so so here, here's what's very interesting is that how, what do most salespeople look like? They're attractive, okay? What are most salesmen, what do they look like? They are tall. By definition, they are using their physique and their charisma to sell. In a virtual environment, they lose that ability. So if you are a salesperson who actually is a subject matter expert and can actually adroitly walk them through the buying process, then you will be far superior to the salesperson that uses their attractiveness and their height to sell. Mm. And there are people that have sold billions of dollars worth of business that if they were not 6'4", they would have never been able to do that because they essentially intimidate their audience into buying. It's very alpha male wolf-esque and people absolutely respond this way. And there've been entire books that have been written about this and that has been taken away from them. Mm. And so to a certain extent, I'm saying this because I'm 5'8 and you're about my height. I'm 5'8 too. And so so it it was just shocking and what, what does that mean about what they're selling? It means that the person who's making the buying decision by definition is irrational because if they were rational, they would not be swayed by the salesperson's appearance in their buying decision. Let me give you another example of that. Amazon Web Services has over a million customers. Do they have a lot of really good-looking salespeople? No, they don't. Who are they selling to? The IT department. What is the most rational part of a business? It is the IT department. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that if you're a salesperson who's selling something new, especially in the place of self-funding or employee benefits or what have you, that if you want to, like you actually want the rational sale. You don't want the emotional, you know, I'm attractive sale. You don't want that sale. You want the rational sale with the benefits nerds. And the benefits nerds, they don't want to talk to you in person. And you, I've sold, I sold 3,000 life groups. I sold a 5,000 life group completely over the phone. It wasn't even a video chat. It was just the phone, okay? Because they were nerds and I was a nerd and we were able to have a rational nerd conversation together. Mm-hmm. And so really, and I'll, and I'll stop with this. So really the success for selling in the employee benefit space is in the finding. It's really in the prospecting. The, the key to sales in the employee benefit space is the prospecting. And if you can prospect well and your sales skills actually kind of stink, you will succeed. And so the best thing you can do is stop listening to this podcast right now and call 10 people. Yes. Just, just, then, call, just call them. I don't care who you call. Call your mom, okay? Yeah. You have to talk to people and you have to constantly prospect. Yes, and after you make those 10 calls, jump back on and we got a couple minutes left. Of course, listen yeah, to Spencer Don't, don't listen to Dr. Berger. Please, <laughs> please stay tuned. Um, last thing I want to do, and I, I would love to hear your perspective on this, especially because I think you do have a finger on the pulse of our industry. So Crystal Ball, you know, where are we going? What, what is the future of solving the crisis, if you will, look like from your perspective? Um, so... I, and I just made an A-Healthcare-C video about this. So no one can predict the future, right? That's one of the classic things. Anybody who says that they can predict the future is totally full of it, sure. right? Warren Buffett's like, I can't predict the future. Nobody can predict the future. But what you can do is you can look at the past and know that, um, that history repeats itself, not exactly, but it rhymes, right? That's a famous Mark Twain co- quote that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important. Like a good sales, I mean, good salespeople are so smart. I mean, it is like, I, I, I talk to good salespeople and good salespeople love history and they read history books. And they do that because they're trying to predict the future by reading all this history. And it totally works. And so with the video that I made specifically said that, look, the march toward 
towards greater federal funding of healthcare in America has been going on for almost 100 years since FDR. It is not since LBJ and Medicare. It is not since Obamacare. It is not since the attempt with, with Bill and Hillary Clinton and Hillary Care. It has been on the Democratic Party agenda for almost 100 years. And this is, this is not a partisan mm-hmm. statement. But what this says is, is that if you have roughly, let's just call it half of America that is pushing for something to happen, then chances are, eventually, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen it happen from the very beginning to... Med- and it, we even had... It's become bipartisan, right? Because George H.W. Uh, or George W. Bush even passed the Medicare Modernization Act where they added Medicare Part D to actually have Medicare costs to cover prescription drugs. So you have expansion mm-hmm. of federal funding for health care. So w- that will happen. Will that happen over 10 years, uh, 15 years, 50 years? I don't know. But the question, be, so what, what that means is, is that the healthcare industry, health insurance, self-funding, the whole financial side of healthcare is going to look like, it's going to look like the defense industry because defense contractors can only sell to one group and that's the federal government. Sure. If you're going to sell a fighter plane, who else are you going to sell it to? <laughs> you're going to sell it to one place, the federal government. And the federal government has to give you permission to sell it to another country. So you need to think about, okay, well, what, how, what in, what, what aspects of the defense industry, and there's very large defense contractors and there's small defense contractors. There's, there's defense contractors that just do software. There's, uh, there's defense contractors that just do hardware. So what about the defense industry can you learn so that you can prepare yourself for when the health insurance industry looks like that? Let me give you one example. Mm-hmm. Where are all the defense companies located? Their headquarters are in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. That is where Lockheed Martin's headquarters is, right? Amazon is not stupid. Where is Amazon building their next headquarters? In Washington, D.C., right? Because they know they wanted to get into healthcare. And if you want to get into healthcare, you got to cozy up with Washington, D.C. So that this, is, this is a general direction. It is not something that's going to happen immediately. It's not linear always as well. Yeah. It's not. But I can tell you that in 15, 20 years, we're going to be looking at more federal funding of healthcare. And you're going to be looking at an industry that looks more like the defense industry than it does right now. Awesome. Well, fascinating. And uh, I appreciate the answer. Last but not least, if folks want to engage with your content, where should they go? Just go to YouTube and look at A Healthcare Z. Um, you can also connect with me at on LinkedIn. So just Eric Bricker, MD on LinkedIn. And once again, I want Spencer... Your stuff is so good. Thank you, sir. And your listeners are really benefiting from the intelligence that you are bringing to them that, frankly, you are a role model to me as well. And so I just want to thank you for that, too. Well, I very much appreciate that. Thank you for that uh, as well. And thank you for coming on. I would certainly welcome uh, you back here uh, sometime soon because I believe we could have hours of conversation together. So, again, uh, thanks to Dr. Bricker for joining me. Thank you to VentureX for the space. And thank you uh, to PlanSight, as always, for the sponsorship of the podcast. I'll see you guys soon.